0: And as you're finding your seat, if you would take your Bible and let's turn together back to the book of Galatians, keeping the prayer that you just heard in your heart that God would do exceedingly abundantly beyond what any preacher could ever handle on their own, but that He would do His work through His word by His Spirit. Join me in Galatians chapter 2. We're picking up in the 11th verse, and I'm going to read through verse 21 this morning because it's all part of one argument, but our focus today. It's going to be largely just 11 through 14. But for context, I'm going to begin in verse 11 of chapter 2 and read to the end there. God's inerrant sufficient word says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came You may know about the Channel Tunnel, sometimes called the Chunnel, because we do that with words now. It's a railway tunnel that goes underneath the English Channel in between the the southern part of England and the northern part of France. The Channel Tunnel is considered one of the most amazing engineering feats of the 20th century. Nearly 10 million passengers a year ride the train under the English Channel using the Chunnel. What's interesting is that when they were digging the channel tunnel, they didn't begin on one end and end at the other. They began on both ends at the same time. They began digging from France and from England so that they would hope to finish in the middle at the same place was the goal. that was the trick of the thing. They brought in special lasers and surveying equipment to to make sure, all these digital compasses, to make sure that they would, in fact, end in the same exact place. And I started to think, as I I thought about that feat, what if their equipment had been off at all? What if it hadn't been tuned up just just right? What if they were off? You know, the, the tunnel itself is 50 kilometers long, so that's 31 miles So if each side was just off by a measure of one degree, the English Channel would miss either side by a half mile in the middle. So they had to be exactly precise. And on December 1st, 1990, they in fact broke through at the exact same place in the tunnel. It's fascinating. For the first time in history at that point, uh, you could travel by train from England to France underwater. Well, I thought, I thought through the fact that we need to see that if our lives, our living is out of alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will face far greater consequences than a tunnel that doesn't meet. If we live out of sync, out of step, as Paul talks about in our text today, with the truth of the gospel, as if the gospel itself is not enough or if we choose to live as if the gospel isn't true, we will make a wreck of our souls and of the souls of others. In today's text, we see the Apostle Paul in these verses, verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul is describing a time, a moment in his life when others were living lives that were not in alignment or in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the effects were severe, so Paul had to intervene in a fairly dramatic way. Now, this longer section here at the very end, we're going to divide it up into into three parts, and the hope is that that will give us enough time to cover the important practical ramifications, the theological, the personal, um, and the practical implications of these texts. But also, the next two sections have such weighty theological ideas that are sort of the, the hub of the book, if you will, that it's too much to cram into one particular message today. And as a church that's committed to going through books of the Bible, we we want to be very careful how we do that. We're not just walking through verse by verse as if those verses stand alone. We want to understand whole arguments of the Bible. So when we divide it up like this, it's important to keep in mind where you are in the middle of the discussion. These are not isolated verses that we get to insert our own meaning into, but that these texts actually stand in the midst of an ongoing argument. We don't get to cherry pick our meanings here. But we need to see what the text actually says. So, the first thing that I want to do as we begin is to remind you that chapters one and chapter two of the book of Galatians are largely Paul discussing what's happened at Galatia as false teachers have come in and accused him of being a second hand apostle of having taught something less than the true gospel. Kind of the gospel light was the accusation against Paul. He really wasn't the real thing they were arguing. Paul's not somebody you should listen to because he was later and he was lesser than the actual apostles. And, And so for that reason, those false teachers were beginning to try to convince others that simple faith in Christ was not enough. That Paul didn't quite get far enough, that you actually needed to come to Jesus through keeping the Old Testament covenant ways. So particularly the work of circumcision, the dietary laws, the Sabbath uh, celebrations, those were all a part of saying, I'm a true Christian. If you really came to Jesus, that's the way you'd live So don't miss that the reason that Paul now in chapters 1 and 2 is addressing this instance with Peter has to do with asserting that he himself was an authoritative apostle. That The, the claims that those false teachers were making were theologically deadly and they were factually untrue. They were not true at all. So Paul wanted to assert that his gospel was true, his, his authority was genuine. So in our section today, Paul is pushing that argument forward, showing that even though his message was the same message agreed to by James and by Peter and the whole church at Jerusalem, even though they stood in unity around the essentials of the very gospel, Paul wasn't borrowing from their authority at all. In fact, Paul himself had to stand up face to face with one of the early pillars of the church, the apostle Peter, and correct a vital error in the way that he was living. So I think here in Galatians, in allowing the Galatian church and us to eavesdrop on this moment in his personal story where he had to do something very difficult in in relation to Peter's actions, Paul is actually showing us that this issue of how the false teachers are saying you've got to come in as a Gentile and be a Jew to become a Christian Paul's saying that's already been settled and that was a long time ago. This discussion has been had. We've already discussed this. This is a settled issue. So today's message, I think we might be helped. Uh, The strategy I'm going to adopt today as we we approach this text first is to give us some background because there's, there's history involved in this that connects to the book of Acts and it connects to other things that are happening in the New Testament that help us understand what's going on here. We want to understand just the surroundings of the text, then look at the actual words of verses 11 through 14, and then I want to make three applications that I think we can draw out of these verses very directly for our own lives. Sometimes I think when we read particularly the, the Gospels or the Epistles, and we, we, we are looking for like a word from the Lord for the day... We often treat them differently than they are meant to be treated. We ignore the ways that all these things fit together in time and in space. And sometimes what's being said by the author has to do with a specific event in time and space that is supposed to teach us something theologically. And if we ignore that context and setting, we'll get the wrong picture of what he's trying to teach us at any given moment. So we need to get a picture in view of what's happening with the incident at Antioch as we come to this. So as we think through Antioch, just a, a quick geography lesson. The, the Antioch is just, it's in Syria, just north of Israel. Um, so you, in that particular day, it was a cosmopolitan city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind only Rome and Alexandria. It had a quarter, this is the low estimate, it has a quarter of a million inhabitants in the city of Syrian Antioch. And so as, as it grew, it became a metropolitan area filled up with both Jews and with Gentile Greeks there. It was a very uh, kind of a mixed city, a melting pot, if you will. As relates to the church, after the stoning and martyring of Stephen in the book of Acts, The persecution begins to set in on the Jerusalem church. And many go out from there into other places to begin to teach. Missionary journeys begin to happen at that point. And in Acts chapter 11, we actually see a missionary journey from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch, where the gospel uh, takes hold among Jews and Gentiles and spreads uh, like wildfire. The, The work is being built up and edified. It is a widely successful evangelistic effort that we see in Acts chapter 11. The Gentiles respond to the gospel, particularly. And when that happens, the Jerusalem church says, We need someone to go up there and make sure that this is kind of has somebody to oversee it. And they send Barnabas. As, as kind of an overseer, as, a, as a, a point man in that ministry. And eventually he is joined by the Apostle Paul in his life as they both come together and begin to do a work. They work there, Paul says, for a year together. And at that time they are seeing all kinds of uh, wonderful ministry happening, so much so that when a famine strikes Jerusalem, they are able to take gifts from the churches back to Jerusalem to help out in light of the famine. Shortly after that trip, Paul and Barnabas themselves joined together in missionary work on that first missionary journey of Acts chapter 13. I tell you that because at the very same time that that's going on, other things are happening in the book of Acts. Peter is out preaching the gospel faithfully. He's out, he's out doing the work of preaching the gospel, so much so he's, he is, he is at, at one point in uh, the nation of Israel, finds himself on the coastal, the western coastal city of Joppa. And while he's there, the Lord descends on him in a vision that totally rearranges his thinking. It's absolutely startling to him as it happens. If you can imagine, his, his upbringing is one of the strictest kind of, of Jewish upbringing. He was a faithful Jew, But in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a divine revelation from the Lord where the Lord explicitly tells him through a vision of a sheet lowered down from heaven where there are both clean and unclean animals represented on there. And he is encouraged and even commanded to partake of them, though he is a faithful Jew and doesn't want to partake of anything unclean. But the Lord himself declares, don't call unclean what I've called clean. This changes the way that Peter begins to live. He begins to understand, Acts 10, 28 makes it so plain that God is not choosing people based on their ethnic background or our perception of their cleanliness. All people can come to him through Jesus Christ no matter what their background was. And Acts 10 begins to play out that change in Peter's life. And eventually, as he's preaching the true gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, Peter himself is arrested by Herod. And you remember the story where he's arrested and he's got got, uh, guards on either side of him and the angel comes and rescues him and sets him free in Acts chapter 12. And when he leaves there, he goes to Antioch. He finds his way to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas have been at work. As he arrives, he's so glad to be there. The Lord's just rescued him. He's, he's so glad. He welcomes into fellowship the Lord's table and into meals everyone who's there. He's, he's a part of all that's going on. So then our account today, where Paul tells us a story that's not in Acts, where he, he tells us there's, a, there's something else that happened that was while that was going on, where Peter actually withdrew from fellowship with the Gentiles and had to be corrected for that because it was affecting other people. Well, in that moment, Peter's actions were in fact a a silent denial of what he believed to be true about the gospel. Peter's snub had the effect of forcing Gentiles to start to wonder, do I need to become a good Jew to become a Christian? And that's why Paul tells this story to the church at Galatia. He says, hey, this is what they're saying about circumcision in Galatia. Me and Peter talked about that one time. This happened. Let me tell you this story about what occurred between Peter and I. And that's our text for today. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. But before we get there, you could uh, fall uh, into kind of curious wondering about, well, does that mean that Paul and Peter didn't like each other? So were they like enemies or anything? And if you read through your New Testament with careful eyes, you'll see that in in 1 Corinthians in multiple places and in 2 Peter that they're actually praising and and referring to God's work through the other later in their lives where it seems very clear that Peter actually receives the rebuke well that he received here from Paul and that they worked through it, which could be a lesson to all of us, I think. So the incident at verse 11 in our text in Galatians, I think, took, took place sometime after Paul's return to Jerusalem. And if if we were to chronologically work through verses 11 through 14, Paul doesn't talk about them in the strictly chronological order. He starts with the end, works his way down and then ends with the end, right? So there's it's kind of not in exact chronology. But if you were to if you were to tease out from the text what the order of events were, it was that first Cephas, who is Peter, that's his other name. Peter comes to Antioch and he's fellowshipping and eating with the Gentile Christians. You see that in Galatians 2, and 12. And then, and then certain men comes from, come from James uh, to Antioch. And that's verse 12 again. We don't know that these men particularly had James's approval or if they just came from the Jerusalem church where James was. It could be either one. I'm not making a case for either, but that's not what's given to us in the text. They came from James' Next, we see that Peter was afraid of this group. That's the last part of verse 12. The presence of these men start to affect the way that Peter's acting. At the end of verse 12, we also see that Peter's fear causes him to draw back and separate from Gentile Christians. And then in verse 13, tragically, all the rest of the Jews in the group begin to mimic Peter. So much so that Barnabas, Paul's partner, is sucked in to the whole affair. So then at the, we, where the verse we start with says that Peter stood condemned, that he was guilty or wrong for what he had done up to that point. And then at the very end we see that Paul rebuked Peter to his face. Paul recounts that rebuking publicly here in the book of Galatians for the benefit of the Christian understanding of the gospel, that it would be true. I think that gives us a, an understanding of the order of what's happening in these verses But let's look quickly at each of these verses and understand them on their own and then put them back together by way of application. So look with me, if you will, at verse 11 and see that Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Paul starts with the the end in mind, saying that he had to publicly oppose one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, Peter, who's also called Cephas, And that opposition was because Peter himself was standing guilty of a sin, or he stood condemned. He's trying to explain to the Galatians as he tells this story that he's not trying to please men. Paul's not trying to please men with his gospel because he had to stand up to one of the people he really respected and loved. It's not about man-pleasing. I just say as we even begin looking at this verse, do you notice already that Paul's setting an example for us that there are times when a sin has to be dealt with publicly. There are times and occasions where the Bible calls us, in fact, to address a public sin in a public way. That's not every sin or every situation. In fact, there are are verses that tell us, as good, faithful followers of Christ, that we can overlook sins. There are sins we can overlook. And that there are even ways uh, that we can address individuals privately. But then there are also occasions where a sin that is public in nature and causing mass um, confusion and sin to flourish among the people, that that sin must be dealt with in a public manner. That's not mean, it's loving. I think we live in a moment where that kind of thing feels so foreign to us that we would address a sin publicly. That's had to happen at Basswood before. There have been occasions where there have been warnings and where there have been um, strong encouragements and where there have been the public declaration of the sin of someone who's walked away from the Lord. And the hope has always been that there would be restoration because that was shared. There would be a repenting and a turning. And we pray the Lord never causes that we would have to do it again. But we stand ready. Should any covenant member walk away from the Lord, that we would call you privately, call you in a group, and then call you publicly to repent of your sin and turn away from it. Public sins do need public corrections. We see that here. But also, even as we start in verse 11, do you notice that Peter's wrong, but Paul, his motive is a correction that, that, that is in hope of restoration or remedy. He's, he's not just blasting Peter um, because he's angry at him. You know, there's so much that happens. I, I My... My encouragement to you is to stay away from social media. If you're at all able, if you can avoid the lure, just don't go there. In fact, there's so much that happens in the name of preserving the gospel and correcting people who are Christians that's just cruel. And that's not, in fact, anything other than a reveling in gossip and a seeking to display shocking accusations for clicks. Paul did something that was face-to-face. He did something that was man-to-man. He did something that was heart-to-heart. He addressed Peter about a sin that Peter had committed. Though it had to be done in public, the aim of it was public restoration for Peter. Another thing I want to start with as we begin this section is I found myself as I read this the first few times sort of immediately making applications as though I were Paul. (laughs) And And it taught me something about my squirmy heart. Why do I see myself as Paul in this story instead of Peter? And I want to encourage you, if you immediately think, well, here's a good text about how to rebuke a brother, I just want to warn you, this may be a good one for you to receive a rebuke from. You and I may be far more like Peter in need of correction than we are like Paul ready to give one. So as we come to this text, I would just encourage you to come humbly, to come ready to receive correction. I think a lot of times in our culture right now, if I were to gauge where things are in our culture, there, is, there are lots of examples of the fear of man that are going on, and we're going to get to that, but there's just as many or more, I think, examples of people who think or believe or pretend that they're being courageous when they're actually just being Cruel gossips. That's what they're spending their time doing. Have you heard about so-and-so's transgression? And there's this little reveling in their heart as they share the brokenness of another person. That ought not be the case among Christian people. We ought not come to this text looking for a bullet to put in our gun. Examine our hearts, even as we begin this text. See if we're more excited about being thought of as heroic, or if we are more excited about seeing people turn from actual sin. This text, I've heard it quoted many times by what I'm going to put in scare quotes, discernment bloggers. They'll take this text and say, see, Paul had to rebuke Peter, so I've got to go rebuke XYZ for their tweet in front of everybody. I just urge caution. Caution. I just urge caution. I would say that may display more about your heart. If you think it's your place to correct everything you see on the internet, you're never gonna do anything else. (laughs) Just just give you a warning. That is an endless pit of silliness. Don't spend all your time doing that. that. In no way should you interpret me as saying that we should not speak truth when someone tells a lie. We should. I'm warning you against the urge to make that your preoccupation to see your role as the great corrector everywhere instead of seeing your need of correction itself. So Don't use this text that way. So let our first reading be as though we are Peter receiving the correction from Paul. He felt like he had to do it, so he did it. Look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And so that's like a political group, if you will, that kind of party. So these are these people who've come as a group, and so Paul's gonna call them by their, their, uh, this epithet, the circumcision group. They're coming in to try to say, if you really love Jesus, you need to follow the Jewish command of circumcision. And so Paul gives this as an explanation for why Peter did what he did. He's saying, look, this is what happened. When these guys showed up, Peter changed. When these guys showed up with their message, Peter changed. He drew back. He separated himself from the Gentiles. I love that Paul presents here this case with no conjecture. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't uh, lambast Peter. He doesn't manipulate the circumstances. He just presents the truth as it occurred. If, if I were guessing, I would think that if Peter read what Paul wrote right here, At verse 12, he would have said, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They showed up, and I pulled back. That's exactly how that went down. And I think that's a good lesson for us to learn, particularly another one to watch for as we look at the scandalous nature of our day. Sometimes, as a child, I'm gonna put it in your court instead of picking on anybody's kids in the room, right? Sometimes, as a child, you may have been tempted to talk about something that happened. And you may have been tempted to tell half the story. To say, well, yeah, yeah, well, she came in and she was yelling at me and then she smacked me with the brush, right? And you leave out the part where she came in yelling at you because you went in and yanked her hair in the hallway, right? So you're telling half the story, but you're presenting it as though it were the whole story. We live in a day filled with that. Where Christians are saying, have you heard such and such and what he or she said? They don't even do the work to see if that really may be a heresy. Or you may be taking a clickbait clip and adding to someone's ad income with your thirst for scandal. Christians love the truth. Can can you get an amen for that, right? Christians love the truth. We're not scared of it. We, we're not scared of the truth. We wanna know the truth and we wanna tell the truth. So these, this is what Paul does. He tells the truth. Certain men come from James. Paul didn't even bring those men's names into it. I thought that was interesting. There's no, Paul doesn't say, let me list them off for you. Here's the guys that came down from James. It was Jimmy and it was Frank and it was Joey and they came down and these guys. No, he just said some guys, certain men came from James. And I would say that they may have a little bit more uh, guilt in this because they're the one who started the whole affair that tempted Peter into it. So you could almost look at them as the the, uh, initiators, the instigators. And Paul just says there are certain men who came down from James. And when they came, Peter began to change. Peter began to change, and he began to live in a way that I know he didn't believe As we noted before these men came, Peter was already great with Gentile cuisine and Gentile company. He was, he was good. Like, you know, we're going we're gonna to hang out because we're all in Christ. It's so good. There's, we, the two men have been made one. There's one people of God. We're all together. There's no division. The wall has been torn down. Amen, Peter would say. And then these guys showed up. Peter begins to say, I don't, I don't know if I can sit with you today, um, yeah, you're Gentile. I'm gonna go sit over here. And Paul knows that that's not just about friends and social circles. It's not just about the Gentiles getting their feelings hurt. No. What's underneath that is a commitment of those men who had come to, to get others to act on top of faith in Christ with deeds that would earn justification, to be made right with God. You gotta believe in Christ, but to believe in Christ, if you really mean it, you'll be circumcised. You'll eat the right food. You'll act like a Jew. That's who's really in Christ. And Paul knows that that's an issue that can't go unaddressed. That's not true. That's not the gospel. So it's not just about food or about bodies or about friendships. It's saying something untrue about the gospel, the only hope any of us have. So verse 13 then lays out how broadly that that little bit of poisonous action led. So the rest of the Jews there in, um, in Antioch began to act hypocritically along with Peter. So what Peter was doing began to get picked up by other people in the congregation and they were all acting the same way, so much so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas got led away by their hypocrisy. So at Antioch, at that particular gathering of Christians, Paul saw Peter make this choice that spread through the rest of the body like gangrene, even to Barnabas, whose reputation, if you remember, whose whole reputation was built on the way that he loves and encourages brothers. And he found himself stumbling at this point. I mean, can you imagine it? After all the work Paul and Barnabas had been doing together in ministry there in Syria and Antioch, after all the work, they were both Jewish men. Acts tells us that Barnabas was a Jew. And he was actually, uh, uh, I think, uh, of the, the tribe of Levi. So he, he's out there serving the Lord, believing as a Jew, right? And Barnabas has gotten caught into this. And you remember earlier they told us that they didn't require Titus to get circumcised. They weren't even going to require that because they both understood it was by faith, not by circumcision. But here, because of the way Peter is acting, Barnabas gets sucked up into this whole silly debate and finds himself acting like Peter. He starts acting like there's a difference between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Just remember with me that Paul knows that circumcision is nothing insofar as the gospel goes. So Timothy uh, gets circumcised, Titus doesn't get circumcised, right? So like, it's not the issue of circumcision. Whatever is gonna most advance the true gospel, that's what Paul wants. If it pollutes the gospel message, Paul wants no part of it. If it confuses people, let's don't do that. But if it advances the gospel, then that may be a means by which others might come to faith. So in one instance, circumcision is a useful tool, but if it's misunderstood, it's a damnable heresy, right? And so he's treating circumcision in that way because he's clear on the gospel. And Peter was clear on the gospel too, but he was acting like a hypocrite. And that's an important word that Paul uses here. Listen, Paul doesn't call Peter a heretic. He calls him a hypocrite. Peter's being A hypocrite. You see that word thrown all over the place. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And usually people mean you're not living up to what you say you believe. That's what people think the word hypocrite means. You're not living up to what you say you believe. But if that's what the word means, the word means nothing because it's the only kind of people there are in the world, right? No one lives perfectly what they fully believe. The actual origin and use of the word hypocrite was that a hypocrite in antiquity was an actor. It was an actor, it was someone who put on a mask to play a part in a performance. And that word became synonymous with concealing your true character and thoughts and feelings under the guise of pretending you believed something else. So when you act hypocritically, you're masking your true convictions and you're playing a part that is not yours to play. So it's almost like you could substitute the word play-acting. And play-acting is what Paul sees Peter and the rest of the Jews doing in Antioch because they know better. They know better. They've put on a mask to cover up what they truly believe about the gospel. Their theology is right, but they're living against it in contradiction to, their go- to the true gospel. Because this delegation comes down from Jerusalem, Peter begins to change the way he acts. Prior to that, everybody's enjoying gospel freedom. After that, all of a sudden, we got to figure out how to get everybody to act like a Jew. So Peter is playing the part of a hypocrite and the rest of the Jews in Antioch are joining in that acting of hypocrisy. I think We'll we'll see in a minute. You and I both know that there are lots of ways that we probably, if we were honest and transparent, would admit that we truly act hypocritically, not just failing to live up to what we believe, but believing things and then living in whole other ways. It's kind of a, a treachery. Here, it's like Peter is like a husband who takes off his wedding ring and acts like a single man a kind of deception. peters he knows better. He, he understands the gospel, and he acts differently anyway because of what these men might think. So Peter and Barnabas and the Jews at Syria and Antioch are wrong in what they're doing because they actually know what's true, and they are doing something that says something entirely different. So how does Paul evaluate that kind of hypocrisy? When he sees it, what does he do? Well, we already saw it in verse 11, but look again at 14. When I saw that their conduct was not, this is an important phrase, was not in step with the gospel. They're not walking the way the gospel goes, the true gospel. Not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul says when he saw what was going on, he knew what their behavior was saying, and it was saying something untrue about the gospel. They were not in step with the gospel. He saw the disconnect between their theology and the way they were living, and he called them on it. They believed a true gospel, but they were living like works of the law really still mattered so that it wasn't saying yay justified oh blessed thought it was justified through circumcision oh blessed thought they were acting like works were still apart, even though they knew it wasn't. So Paul spoke up and he did it in a big way. It's it's another example where Paul says he's confronting Peter in front of everyone. And when he says it that way, it really seems to me like this may have been the public meeting of the congregation. Like the body was gathered. They weren't just hanging out outside. Like he's in front of everybody. Paul feels the need to confront Peter about the way he's living. This public offense needed to be addressed in a public way way with a public call for repentance but even here i find it fascinating after paul in the book of galatians has already talked about those who were teaching a false gospel he said they were anathema (laughs) anathema he doesn't say that to peter here and it's not just favoritism because there's a theological difference in what's going on his approach to peter is the assumption that "I i know you believe the gospel what are you doing Why are you living this way? He comes to Peter with a question. My paraphrase of his question—that is kind of his. His question is a little short. I'm going to extend it a little bit. This is purely paraphrase. (laughs) I think it went something like this: Hey, you're you're Jewish, right, Pete? Right. Well, you grew up with all the rules and regulations of a son of Abraham—the clothes, the food, the ceremonies, all of it. Right. But. Jesus redeemed you from all of that, right? He filled all that up and redeemed you by the blood of the cross. And he, and he gave you a personal vision about that on the rooftop, didn't he, Pete? He, he told you that he doesn't distinguish between types of people that he's going to save. Jews and Greeks can come through Jesus. And And you know that's true, don't you? And you've lived like that. You've lived like a Gentile in some ways, haven't you? You basically get to do that because Jesus has filled that up for you. So if that's true and you believe that, Peter, why are you acting like all your Gentile brothers have to become Jewish to get to Jesus? Isn't that out of step with the gospel that Jesus told you? Paul publicly addresses Peter's hypocrisy. I don't think it's done in a cruel way. I think it's done in a way to bring the truth to light for Peter so that Peter will repent and turn away from the way he's acting and turn back to what he knows to be true. The language is really direct that Paul uses. And it's a rebuke of everybody in the room. So he's not just dressing down Peter because we already know everybody was doing what Peter was doing, right? So everybody in the room has been being a hypocrite like Peter. And so when he addresses Peter, he's really talking to the whole crowd he says their conduct is not in line with the truth, and that verb denotes walking a straight line on an issue, not turning to the left, not turning to the right. If the gospel is a straight line, you've gone off the course, buddy. Though so Your actions look like that. But I know you know the truth. I know you know the gospel. Peter and the others were deviating. They had to correct their hypocrisy before it was going to cause irrevocable harm and misunderstanding about the gospel itself. They were not in step with the truth of the gospel. I think sometimes we may not act like food laws or like circumcision is the thing uh, that saves us, but I do think, as Ronnie's pointed out in previous messages, that we connect all sorts of other outward acts at times to our gospel in ways that really do endanger us falling out of step with the truth of the gospel. I just want to encourage us to stay in step with the gospel. So we need to make practical application if we're going to do that. We need to to think about what we've seen here. I mentioned it earlier, and I kind of made a little bit of a point of it, but I'm going to say it again. When you come to this text, do you think this text is about how to be a good rebuker? This was primarily Paul's point to the church at Galatia. Hey, if you're going to dress people down, here's the way to do it. I don't think that's what he's after Paul's concern is that the gospel not get polluted at Galatia. So he's bringing this incident up because he needs them to know that same danger is afoot among you. You too could fall prey to what Peter fell prey to. And in fact, in Galatia, it's happening. People are starting to say, maybe you need circumcision to come to Jesus. So if we come to this text eager for a playbook, to rebuke others. Let me just just swap chairs with you for a minute. Let me just just spin the table on you and say let's begin with this text addressing our own hearts. Before any of us begin comparing our role to that of the Apostle Paul and just let me give you some advice, you shouldn't. But before we ever get tempted to that, there may be wisdom in asking God's spirit to reveal, Lord, am I out of step with the gospel anywhere in my life? Is there anywhere in my life where I'm out of step with the truth of the gospel. I got three applications to help drive that home. The first is this. You could be out of step with the gospel through a fear of man. Did you see that with Peter? Fear of man was a big deal. He was was absolutely terrified of what the the circumcision party, the the folks from uh, the church at Jerusalem, were gonna think of him, and that caused him to live in ways that he knew were out of step. The fear of man will cause you to walk out of step with the gospel. The easy, low-hanging fruit on that is that the world wants you to be afraid of them. Everywhere you turn, you're, you're, you're going to hear from people who look at the church, who, the, church the, the gathered body of Christians who are committed to the word of God as sufficient for life and live their lives that way. You are going to hear from the world that you are on the wrong side of history. You, you, you're, making, you're, you're, you're gonna miss out on everything good in life if you believe that book. In fact, you're gonna look like a bigot, a sexist, a racist. Everything about you is gonna just be evil. You, no one's gonna like you. That's what you're gonna hear from the world if you hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're gonna try to get you to give up on repentance of sin. You don't need to repent. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Who, who needs to repent? Who needs to admit that they're a sinner in need of God's rescue? The world is going to push you to give up on truth over and over and over again. And if you fear man, you will be tempted, in spite of what you know to be true, to embrace these lies. But you may also be tempted in other directions. I, I fear this for our church more. More. I fear that there are times in our culture, and and I don't mean to beat a dead horse, I just want to be plain, where the liberal world is not the thing that is really what we're scared of. But in fact, we're scared that someone's gonna think we're woke if we take more than .2 milliseconds to respond to the tweet of the day. (laughs) We're, We're worried that if we actually give pause and listen to an argument to understand if it's true or false, that we might be mistaken for a liberal out there. And fear of man might cause us to say and do things that the Bible would condemn as gossip, as cruelty, as, as really idolatry in a sense. We might embrace those acts out of a fear of what other people might think about us. The fear of man can get you anywhere. Young people in the room who think, well, Matt, you know, I'm not, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I'm not, none of those things scare me. Uh, I, I hear, I'm not so young anymore, I hear the large fear of the day is the fear of missing out, right? FOMO, fear of missing out. That everyone's worried that there'll be some experience that everybody else gets to have that I didn't get to have and I'll die before I have it. If I could just lovingly warn you, don't fear missing out on what everybody else has. Fear missing out on what God has for you. Don't, don't miss F- don't fear missing out on what the world says. Here's what you need. Fear missing out on what God says you need. Don't fear man. Fear God. And that's the remedy to the fear of man, is it not? Christians, is the remedy to the fear of man the fear of God? The Bible says so. Jesus says, don't, don't fear men who can only kill your body, but fear, fear God who can, who, can, who can condemn your soul to hell. In Matthew's Gospel. And, and Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is actually where wisdom even starts. You can't even get on the pathway with wisdom without a right fear of God. The fear of God is a remedy for the fear of man. Some of the most courageous women and men in church history are those who had much fear of God and little fear of man. So the first thing we might encourage ourselves with is that we can fall out of step through a fear of man. The second application we might make from this text is that we can fall out of step through hypocrisy. That's, That's what Peter did. His fear of man led to hypocrisy, acting in a way that he knew was not true. No one wants to be called a hypocrite, right? That word just feels dirty. Nobody wants to be labeled that. And so not many people want to admit that they do that. But until we're willing to admit that there are times and places that we are acting the hypocrite, we're never going to be able to be done with it. Until we're willing to confess it, it will remain a stronghold in our life. 1 John 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He does, uh, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Matthew 6, Jesus gave a warning to all of his followers. Beware, beware, watch out for practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Quit play acting in front of God. He knows who you are. James 1 gives a warning about Not being a hypocrite with our tongue. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I don't think the Lord takes hypocrisy lightly in his word. So I want to encourage us all to be honest enough to see that anywhere that we are play acting the part, we need to repent, we need to turn away. It's a sobering challenge, I think. I think if you wanted to make it even more practical, just realize this. So you come to church on Sunday and we see who you present. Your family sees who you are even better than you do. You know this is true. They see you better than you do. They know what you really believe. So they know if you're playing a part on Sundays, it has nothing to do with who you are. The watching world also sees us when you and I play the the part of the hypocrite and act like we don't believe what we do believe. Not only can that infect other Christians and cause them to stumble too, it can impact non-Christians and cause them to misunderstand the gospel entirely. I think a little hypocrisy is like a little poison. You just don't want any, right? It can be deadly in the smallest doses. So how do we battle hypocrisy? How do we fight that? Well, the first thing is sort of related to the last thing. Stop looking to everyone else for your approval. Stop looking to others for your approval. But second, turn away from even the smallest deviations of truth in your life. Even the smallest ways that you are lying about what you know to be true, repent and turn to Christ. The third application, this is the final one and then we'll close, is that we need to stay in step with the gospel. So that's the two negatives and now positive. Stay in step with the gospel. Follow what Jesus says. You know, it's sort of like being on a balance beam. We've got to look straight ahead and see Jesus and focus on him. Don't don't get caught up in what's going on around us. Don't look at our feet and become obsessed. Instead, look straight ahead at Jesus and walk the line toward him. Look at the gospel. Look at him and head that way we don't want to go side to side we don't want to look into the crowd and see if they approve we need to follow jesus so we need to walk in step with the truth of the gospel it's a fairly simple application what you know to be true walk that way but what if we fall i'm going to close with this i was encouraged by martin luther's take on this passage because when he came to this passage he saw something that i didn't see at first what, what happens to Christians who act more like Peter than like Paul? What, what do we get out of this text? Martin Luther said this passage is a great comfort to hear that even such great saints sin. A comfort with which those that say saints cannot sin would take away from us. And Luther points out, Samson and David and many other celebrated men who were full of the Holy Spirit fell into sin. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah grew tired and prayed for death. Such errors and sins of the saints are set forth to us in order that those who are troubled and desperate may find comfort and that those who are proud may be afraid. Here's what he said. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not stand up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. Listen, we are feeble and frail at best, but the good news is that we don't stand by our own strength. We don't stand by works that we add to the gospel. It is the work of Christ on the cross that stands sufficient for our standing. And so we look to him and we walk in alignment with the gospel. If you're you're here today and drifting even one degree to the left or to the right of the truth of the gospel, can I just encourage you? There's hope for you. Hypocrite, you can be redeemed. You can be redeemed. There's hope. Even for hypocrites like us and like Peter, our only hope is in what Christ has done. So whether you are an unbeliever in Christ, you could come to him today. There's nothing you've done that would keep you away. We heard of the love of God at the beginning of the service. If you would come through Christ, you would be saved today. And believer, there's enough hope for all of us at the foot of the cross. So let's look to Christ and follow him. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our strength is not enough to hold us. We need your strength. And God, you have shown yourself strong, strong enough to conquer death and the grave and every sin that would seek to destroy our souls. God, you have shown yourself strong through the cross of Christ, So Spirit, would you help us as we seek to walk in step with the gospel? Would you keep us from deviating one degree to the left or to the right? And Lord, if we deviate, when we fall, would you by grace send others and your spirit to correct and restore us that we might walk in step with Christ again? Lord, we ask this in the perfect name of Jesus who is truly enough for us all. Amen.